Welcome to BSing with Sean K. I'm your host, Sean Neese. For new listeners, what I do is I interview people who uh, are outside the box in one way or another, sort of going against the current and either thinking for themselves or doing their own thing. And I've had a lot of artists and musicians, poets, people like that on my podcast, but also people that have perspectives that are sort of outside the mainstream or perspectives that aren't exactly heard in the mainstream media very often. And for this episode, uh, this is episode 65, I'm going to play you a conversation I had with a YouTuber grappling ignorance. And a lot of his videos at least his early videos dealt with atheism and religion and since he's since then he's talked more about politics he's also a spoken word poet and he's written he posts a lot of his poetry on his channel he is anonymous though in his videos and he uh doesn't like to show his face and he he goes into that a bit more in the interview or conversation more of a conversation than an interview i'd say and i'm gonna play you one of his poems at the end because it's only two minutes it was a rel- it was a pretty long conversation we got into um about a lot of different things we're both on the left with our politics or at least i lean towards the left um i don't like to throw labels on myself and neither does he as he explained in the interview but we both had similar issues with how the left is making a lot of their arguments and we felt we found it more productive to criticize our own side at least that's how i i think he shares a similar view uh to criticize our own side because they're the side we want to win so we want to be able to reach people who disagree with us more effectively and meet them where they are And I think people on both sides need to do that more. And that was the main thing we got into in this conversation. And also a bit about his life and how he became an atheist and his poetry and his experience as a teacher as well. Uh, It was a really good conversation and I hope you enjoy it. You want to start off just talking about like who you are and like what you do, how you got started with YouTube and all that? Uh, Sure. Um... It was, gosh, I guess about eight years ago, um, around 2010, when uh, when I started my YouTube channel, uh, I began uh, mostly starting with uh, topics about atheism, uh, when that was more of a, a blossoming conversation in the earlier YouTube days, and uh, went on to, uh, as I continue to uh, contribute to YouTube today. I'm still talking about that topic occasionally, but also um, I post writings of poetry, short stories, um, video essays, I suppose, uh, 
topics on education and uh, things of that nature. So uh, I branched out a lot more uh, since the early uh, 2010s, uh, and uh, that's that's what I do. Yeah, so uh, I, I've seen some of your poetry on there. Has that been like a main thing you've been pursuing or like doing uh, spoken word or whatever? Um, I guess I, I've always enjoyed writing some form of poetry since I was a little kid, uh, but it's uh, it's something that I more – I suppose around 2013, 2014, I started posting um, more of it there. Uh, it's an interesting avenue. Uh, you, you never know. You can't please everyone, I guess, especially on the internet. Uh, one of uh, one of the the highest compliments that I can get on those kind of videos are when people say, you know, I don't like poetry, but I like yours. Uh, so so that's kind of encouraging. Sometimes people will say that. Um, other people will <laughs> will accuse me of of trying to post rap songs when. <laughs> I'm I'm when I'm just putting a poem on YouTube. So uh, like I said, you can't please everybody. Um, and I guess when when you're putting up various things from poems to short stories to uh, socio political commentary to things about education, uh, you're gonna get a, a wide variety of people, which I, I really like about my. Uh, my YouTube viewership is that it is such a heterogeneous group that that there there's. I don't think I've ever posted anything where there wasn't some kind of criticism, which can be frustrating if it comes from a lack of understanding. But it also really keeps me on my toes that it makes me want to make sure that I'm, I'm getting things right. And it gives me an opportunity to learn things when I mess something up. So uh, I guess that's the long answer to, yeah, I've been I've been posting poetry for a while. <laughs> and what I got from I Laughed was uh, the poem I Laughed that you posted that was talking about your experience growing up in the Bible Belt, right? And I guess that's where you get a lot of your views on religion. Um, okay, so I laughed. Actually, I think that's the oldest. I think it's the first poem that I've, I posted on YouTube, and it's still one of my favorites. It's uh, it's not the the story of growing up in the Bible Belt, as I didn't. Um, it, it's the story of moving to the Bible Belt uh, from – I'm originally from the north, and I started my teaching career – in the South. So there was a lot of culture shock associated with that. Um, religion was, I thought religion was important <laughs> when I was growing up uh, to a lot of the people around me. And I remember when I first went to, um, I mean, if you're interested, I can get into the um, basics of what religion was for me growing up. But uh, long story short of it, uh, I was raised culturally religious, but we didn't we weren't churchgoers. And I was actually kind of guilted into going to church because my public school teachers and peers uh, would kind of sneer at you if they asked you something like, what church do you go to? And when I said I didn't, uh, you know, my elementary school friends were worried I was going to go to hell and my um my teachers would would be surprised that I wasn't going, not all of them, but a lot of teachers would, would look down at you for something like that. So I started going to church um, and, and found my way out of it. But uh, but yeah, so going from that, I thought that religion was important there until I moved to the south. And then I found out how it, comparatively much more important it was uh, for, for people in the south um, overall living in the Bible Belt, living in a – very bucolic area where religion was was extremely important and 
being a non-religious person in such a religious part of America was extremely challenging. And YouTube was was very therapeutic for me at the time. Uh, so that particular poem, uh, one of my oldest and favorites on YouTube, is uh, is about that experience of moving there and realizing how serious people take religion there um, and unfortunately how they will how they view somebody who is non-religious and how seriously they take that yeah it's interesting uh you mentioned like a, a place in the north outside the bible belt being like that obviously not to the extreme of the bible belt but yeah i originally even in new jersey a town the town i originally lived in new providence i had like a, a strong presbyterian uh presbyterians kind of ran everything in that town like they kind of banned alcohol from the bars and everything and mm. they kind of would uh you know be like oh why didn't you go to church what church that thing you're talking about so it's interesting how there's areas like that everywhere even outside the bible belt yeah i, I think it's uh it's natural for so many things for us to want to compartmentalize and to break down things into categories and we say like you know the north is this way or the south is this way or out west or the east coast it's like this or on an even bigger scale we'll say well you know in africa it's like this so or in in america it's like this in the united states uh and no no one person who's i mean i've lived in uh technically four different states and i i wouldn't even be prepared to to try to explain to people what it's like in the United States, like overall, because I just I don't there's such a, a breadth. Um, you really have to be very well traveled to grasp that. Um, but but it does a disservice when we do that with our brains. We let ourselves say like, oh, you know, the north is this way and the south is this way. And people are this way here when, when you're talking about just the complexities of an individual person, um, let alone those individuals contributing to a culture. And like I think you used a good word saying that there, there are pockets of different kinds of groups and different ways that people interact. So uh, that experience has shown me that, yeah, it's there's some significant cultural difference to be considered. But uh, there were also pretty religious pockets of people where I was originally from, just not the same level that, that I was kind of got smacked by when I came here. And was it hard doing uh, YouTube when you moved to the Bible Belt, like putting your views out there and everything? Um, well, yes and no. In a way, it was, uh, it was like I said, it was therapeutic. It was so important for me to be able to do that. And I met some awesome people who are still some of my closest friends today. Uh, unfortunately, they don't live close to me, uh, at least at the present moment. Um, uh, but I've gotten to know several people through YouTube that uh, I have had the pleasure of, of meeting in person and uh, on multiple occasions. And, and that was great. It was such a positive thing for me. Uh, I am technically on my my third YouTube channel as of uh, I think 2000, 2011, fall of 2011. Um, my original YouTube channel was, uh, you know, I started it when I was in college and it was just like to have a YouTube account and it had my name in it. And then I realized that I probably shouldn't dox myself and had another YouTube channel, which was like the unthinkable happened. And uh, this is when I wasn't posting um, anonymously uh, and a student discovered it. So a student discovered me, one of my um, Southern Bible Belt Bible thumping students discovered uh, one of my YouTube YouTube videos, thereby discovered my YouTube channel, which 
spread kind of uh, rampantly through the school and got to administration and I had to uh, I had to delete that channel and it was with much hesitation uh, originally and through some discussions with my the friends that I had uh, it was a very tough time but I decided to come back and start a third channel where I was posting anonymously with uh, at least plausible deniability um, that all happened in a relatively short amount of time and it, it was at a time where YouTube was so important to me um, but yeah so that had to happen <laughs> um, so in a way as far as providing the content um, it was it was very important to me and it, when in your daily life you're kind of assaulted with these things um, that when people people genuinely just assume that you're a bad person for for disagreeing with them on, on theological perspective um, to just be able to vent that to just be able to talk about what that means and to present arguments against that um, and, and to have the discussion growing up you know it wasn't it wasn't a discussion it wasn't a question it was just like yeah this is the way it is um, religion is just considered to be true and for a lot of people I think it still is you know a lot of people never question it uh, they they don't have the luxury of questioning it. It's just a, a truth. So to be able to do that was really important. Um, having your job at risk or having it impact your job, that was the tough part. It was interesting uh, that a student, you said it was a student, was the one yeah. that pointed out, not a boss or a coworker. No, it was, it was a student who found it. Um, <laughs> the uh, uh, Several um, of my teaching peers that heard about it approached me uh, and the ones who the ones who uh, cared about me approached me and talked to me about it and suggested, hey, you need to take this channel down uh, before administration can investigate. You need to do whatever you can. If there's no way of like filter, figuring out who all of your students are on YouTube and, and their parents and blocking it out, you need to find a way to do this. The ones who um, who didn't care about me and were, you know, uh, if they weren't out uh, against me for being some random northerner that wasn't in the good old boys club of this small town, um, they they either would just get very awkward and silent with me and, and a lot of students were the same way. It was very difficult. But uh, by the time that administration did approach me about it, I was able to say that, look, I, I have already gotten rid of the channel. I've, I've taken it down. Um, I, I was able to take their advice and put myself in the best position possible to keep my job. So were you raised with, I guess, pretty much the same beliefs as those people in the Bible Belt, or was it a little bit different? What you were um, yeah. I, I was raised Catholic, um, culturally Catholic. Like I said, we didn't go to church. Um, my father's mother, she was the very much the, the the she was an extreme catholic uh who forced her kids you're going to go to church and sunday school and you know you're going to do this and this at mass and you're going to know all the incantations of a catholic mass and these which is a very strange thing if you've never been into one they all like there are certain times when they respond to certain things that the the preacher is saying and uh you you have to get up and sit down and get up and sit down it's 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 something. Um, but I didn't really like, be, I think my father from experiencing that from being forced to go through all the church stuff, he didn't want that for us. Um, and he was not involved in my life very much, but, uh, 
in my early childhood, he was, and he didn't want that for us. He didn't want to force his kids to go to church. And I don't think he felt like going either. <laughs> so, um, when, when I got into like my late middle school years, I, like I said, basically from guilt from my peers and, um, teachers and other people that, you know, were important outside of my family, um, in combination with, you know, I believe this because I was raised to believe in God. I was raised to believe that the Bible's true. I was raised to have this um, cultural respect for religious traditions. Um, Jesus was was very much, you know, it's because it's Jesus's birthday. Uh, that's what Christmas is all about. Um, stuff like that. Uh, I started taking myself to church, um, but the church church closest to my house was a Methodist church, so I. I, I didn't really pick based on, hey, I'm going to evaluate all these different denominations and then I'm going to go to the one with which I most agree. I just went to the church that was closest and I figured I was going to be able to, to save my soul doing that. <laughs> so, so, so that's where my kind of religious background came from was the cultural part from my family and then – between like late middle school to late high school is uh, when I was going to church on my own and reading the Bible and listening to people's interpretations of it and having conversations with other people. Um, and then early college is when I was able to, you know, but you find that when you finished reading through the Bible and you're having conversations with people and, and you're encountering people that was through YouTube was kind of the first place that I started hearing the argument that, hey, maybe that's not true. And it was like really the first time other than um, like edgy middle school atheists who are also like, yeah, we should smoke because, you know, everyone's going to die anyway. So like those kind of people that I kind of thought were just taking a position of atheism for the sake of being edgy. Um, it, apart from them, I never experienced that perspective. So um, the combination of actually, you know, and a lot of people will say this, a lot of atheists will say this, if you want people to deconvert from their religion, get them to read their holy text. <laughs> so in a combination of actually reading it and having all these questions and that people couldn't answer very well and then – being exposed to the idea that, hey, it's okay. There are actually people. There might not be a lot of people around you, but there are people that understand. And sometimes if you're the only person with a reasonable position and you're surrounded by unreasonable people or people that hold an unreasonable position, you can feel like the crazy one. So um, the internet, I think, really broke that open for a lot of people, and I was one of them. And was uh, so was like there one memorable moment where you just like really realize this is all bullshit and – um, full atheist or <laughs> I, I can't say that I had like a single epiphany. I think it really and I think this is true for many people. It was more gradual. It was like this series kind of the way that uh, the ocean tide chips away at, a, at an embankment and it just kind of little by little by little you get to this point. So um, mine was extremely uh, gradual. I kind of went from you know when when I was growing up, I, I do have a moment that I remember very clearly of like my first understanding of what God was. And this is when my older sister who's four years older than I was explaining what it means, like how God is om, uh, omnipotent. And the way that she explained it to me as, as a very young child was that if God wanted to knock you over and make you scrape your knee on the cement right now, he could do it. 
And I was like, whoa, like what an awesome, powerful being who could do that. And so like I, I still have that very keen memory of somebody who could just like deliver pain to you if he felt like it. And it's like a uh, comic book character. Yeah, <laughs> right. Like, he could just, like telekinesis. He could just make that happen. Um, <laughs> And that's how my childhood mind understood it. And so I went from like that because when you're – well, when I was a very young child, if like my older sister or my mom or my dad or, or somebody told me something, it was just true, right? You just that, – that's just true. Why would they lie to me or, or why would they tell me something that's not true? And then going from that into the studying of it itself and then studying your way out of it. So having like natural questions – like you don't have to get far into the Bible to start having questions if you're looking at it objectively and having been, you know, it's, it's very strange when you grow up in a religious culture without going to church and without going to Sunday school. Um, a lot of people um, just assume that you understand these things. They, they assume that you know these things. They assume that you've read the story of David and Goliath and that you, um, you know, these religious stories that are in the Bible, but you haven't necessarily read them if, if if you haven't been in a household that taught those to you. So um, I was really kind of hungry to catch all these references that I've been missing. Um, and, you know, I went into it wanting, you know, just expecting to believe it. I wasn't even reading these things or studying these things or having these conversations to, to find my way out of it. I was trying to do it to find my way in. But you get like two or three pages into the Bible and you're like, wait, what? <laughs> like, why is God asking questions? Like, shouldn't he just know things already? And uh, it, it's it's just this isn't the omnipotent, omniscient person that was described to me if he has to, like, ask Adam where he's been and, and stuff like that. So um, the uh, – uh, I hope that's not too long of a way of answering your question. Oh, no, but no. Uh, as far as, like, having an immediate – uh, moment where I, I worked my way out of it. It didn't happen, but I did go from like, I do remember um, when I didn't really understand the difference between uh, atheism and agnosticism, like I was, I was an agnostic for like a week <laughs> where I went from like being religious to like, oh, I'm not so sure about this, but I don't really want to like commit and say that I'm not sure because that would be arrogant. And then I just kind of realized that, yeah, I, I don't believe this anymore. And now it's just a matter of reasoning why and articulating it better and i let go of the the soft um the softer label of, of agnostic yeah and i and i guess it's like uh why did he need someone else to write through him too why couldn't he yes. just you know make oh yeah himself? all kinds <laughs> of things like once once the the cap is off you know all these things start flooding out once you realize the possibility of like wait a minute maybe this isn't even true um, all these questions that seem like common sense start start flooding into your mind, or at least they did for me. Yeah, and it's it's interesting you brought up uh, wanting to be able to know like the different references and all that because it's kind of like religions kind of become like an important part of literature, like whether or not like people are religious or not, like all the references and other works and everything. Sure, sure. I mean, if you look at things like um, you know The Simpsons, uh, all kinds of TV shows and things like that make reference to these things, and uh, and we didn't really study them in, in school. So as a public school student in America, um, they they just kind of assume that you're going to understand the Abrahamic religions through your – I guess we just expect you to understand those more or less or at least growing up. 
I never once studied anything with Christianity in school other than um, in art class. They would use a couple of comparisons. So they show us a couple of statues and some stuff like that. But there was and, – and I remember very specifically in those classes, they would just kind of – they would take for granted that you knew about um, what the Sistine Chapel was depicting or you knew – um, these, these different stories from the Bible that were put in paintings or had sculptures devoted to them. Um, so I knew more about the actual religions of like ancient Egypt and the Greek gods and things like that because we learned about them in school. Uh, but I didn't know, I didn't understand references and things like that to Christianity until I studied it myself. Yeah. And I guess, I guess like from an allegorical, uh, perspective, you can still like, get something from it but the problem is like i guess people who are very religious view it very literally so, yeah like, they literally think these things happen yeah you could um, and i've heard this um in my early college years um in english classes i heard professors talking about what a great work of literature these stories in the bible were or what great works of literature they were um but, but there aren't really it's not really the case in my opinion um I would much rather read, uh, you know, um, just about any author. I'd rather read Washington Irving or Robert Frost or John Steinbeck any day before I read anything from the Bible. Uh, it's just, and maybe that's, you know, it's been translated so many times and it's, you know, there are all these issues with getting from where it was to where it is now, but I just don't find the writing that great. Uh, you could sum up the stories and things like David and Goliath. They're like, oh, well, yeah, I guess if we really get to the base of that, of some of an underdog triumphing, yeah, that's a cool story, but there are also like 10 other stories off the top of my head that fit that theme that are better than what we get from the bible so yeah and you, you probably get sick of it like being in the bible belt and probably hear about it all the time anyway so yeah yeah i mean and the, the uh i do live a bit farther north i'm still in the south that, than i did when i was teaching um where i originally moved um but uh but yeah there, there definitely is still a stronger religious influence here and than there was where i grew up and you do a lot of people just you know people take it for granted they, they 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 assume that everybody is their religion or at least some strand of it whereas when i was living in um the rural bible belt town of 5000 people it wasn't just that everyone assumed you were some strand of christianity pretty much everyone just assumed that you were southern baptist and if you weren't then there was something wrong with you so i i noticed the like your more recent videos it's more political these days like uh, arguing with people politically and religion i guess and you were saying earlier like religion doesn't have as much of a dominance like at least on the internet that it did like a few years ago uh maybe in a way people are using politics as sort of a substitute uh for religion now like th their group has all the answers and i know you you're uh you you're more towards the left in a lot of ways, but you said you've been having a lot of disagreements with the way the left's making their arguments nowadays. Yeah. So um, a couple of things there for, for me, it was interesting that, you know, I, I moved 
to a slightly more progressive area in the South, like by Southern standards, I'm in a more progressive place now than I was where I first, uh, where I was originally when I started my channel. Um, and I kind of made that move as YouTube was making this move to where, um, I guess there was this golden age of YouTube atheists when we were all kind of covering the same things in different ways. And, um, for, for a, a long time, and I think there was value in that. And, uh, a lot of religious people were making kind of back and forth, arguments and this was in the time when youtube was actually conducive to like response videos and there was some really good philosophical discussion going on but uh it kind of got to the point where the things that at least personally and i think this is true for most of us who were doing this um i said the things that i needed to say and i still will if something in particular comes up but um I also, at the same time that YouTube was kind of shifting away from that, I also moved to a different location. And then I don't really like talking about politics. I don't consider myself a um, political expert. Um, I, I really consider myself more of a layperson whose interpretation of political action is more based on just kind of real life experiences. Um, there are, and I've met people from YouTube who, uh, who watch C-SPAN for fun and they, they they really get into the stuff and they just devour uh, what's happening in the political landscape. But um, I, I have made videos that touch on at least sociopolitical issues and some things with politics uh, just when, when I have something to say or when I feel that um, there's there's something frustrating and if I can get some some form of relief or sometimes if, if I don't fully understand something or I have a thought about something, I know that if I put it on YouTube, I'm going to get everybody else's perspective on it. So um, even though people assume that when you say something and you put it on YouTube, that you're speaking from as if it's from a position of authoritarian, uh, uh, this authoritarian position where you, you are saying something because you know it to be true. Um, I'm okay with putting things out there that I'm thinking about and and getting a variety of unique perspectives. So um, what you mentioned at the end there was, yeah, I, I politically, believe it or not, um, I'm I'm pretty left leaning. I consider myself a left leaning independent, a pretty firmly left leaning independent. Um, I don't really like putting political labels on myself or, or really labels in general on myself. Because when you do that, you find yourself grouped in with a bunch of people. And uh, I think we, when we do that, when someone says, yeah, I'm a Republican, <clears throat> all of a sudden other people, again, we get back to compartmentalizing, compartmentalizing things. People assume, oh, you're Republican. I know A through Z about you because this is how Republicans think about things. I think we're a lot better off just having conversations with individuals about what their positions are. Um, and, and that kind of helps to sway the issue with labels. But because of language, it's a lot more efficient. We sometimes have to talk about things in terms of left, right and, and things like that. So overall, yes, I'm, I'm a left leaning independent. Um, and when, when I'm consuming content, uh, I tend to because I'm already left leaning. I tend to consume more right wing content. I want to hear from the opposite position. I don't need to hear from the position with which I already agree. Um, and I try to entertain and see things from the positions from wh with which I disagree. I I'm interested in hearing from at least somewhat reasonable people on the other side because that helps me either understand their arguments and how I should respond to them or it might change my mind. Uh, whereas if I put myself into an echo chamber, 
I'm I'm never going to grow. I, I might I might you know find new ways to argue things from parroting what other people say, but I'm not going to have a, a deeper understanding of what those arguments are because I didn't think through them myself. So, um, on that same note, uh, I'm not compelled to necessarily argue with people that I think are just obviously wrong. Um, I don't feel like I have as much of a chance or, or will it be as helpful for me to be one of another million voices that are telling people, for example, that it's wrong to be racist or that Nazis are bad or that neo-Nazis are bad. Um, what That doesn't frustrate me as much um, because I, I feel like you know society by and large understands that, um, and I don't know that I can provide – insight that will that has not already been provided on these topics uh i think it has been pretty thoroughly covered that like universal health health care is a good thing i had a video about that years ago um but but that's just one example i don't think of like a video that i've made on something like that things that just appear to be common sense to me that doesn't seem as useful uh, and it doesn't bother me as much that people disagree as people on my own side of the political spectrum who are doing harm to themselves or they're doing harm to our side of, of the issue. So that um, keeps coming back to me in various ways as um, as one of the more important things, as, as one of the bigger problems that we have uh, that we have right now. Uh, one of my recent videos was um, the uh, I think it was like the America's biggest problem or the biggest problem in America right now, something to that effect. Um, and it was talking about that, this, this, this lack of will to argue and this, this lack of nuance that I think is really hurting the left, um, which we can get into if you'd like, but, but yeah, I, I think it's more important than anything that we are able, whether, no matter what side of the spectrum you fall on or what side of the argument. Um, I've also, been an atheist who talks, who who brings out, I have a video called You're Not Helping, uh, and it's talking about atheists who have gone too far and have taken, uh, they've taken their arguments to the point where you're doing more harm than good. And I think that, that there are far fewer voices that are actually on your own side that are calling out your own side and saying, look, we need to scale back on this or this effect, this isn't effective, this isn't working. Um, and it's bad enough if something is not effective. But it's a real problem if it's counterproductive. So if I'm – and I, I have to constantly be aware of this myself too. If I am a liberal and I'm making arguments in a way that is uh, turning people off from my side of the argument, then that's a problem. I'm not just being ineffective. I'm being counterproductive if I'm driving people away from my own side. And I think it's important that we have the – the willingness to call each other out when we make those kinds of mistakes and, and it's not and to not be insulted when someone calls us out yeah because you you want to be able to communicate with people who don't already share your view because right. if, if you're only able to communicate your ideas to people that already agree then that doesn't accomplish anything right and I, I think that a lot of the it left feel good but it doesn't really do, accomplish yeah. anything yeah <laughs> Yeah, like I have noticed that has like been a, a problem with like the left not making a coherent argument, even with, you know, Trump, who's easy to argue against. I feel like they just focus on a lot of nonsense that isn't even that important, like the the whole Russia. I'm not I don't know what your view is on the whole Russiagate thing. I think they're they're wasting 
way too much time with that. And then um, the way, the way they kind of just don't want to engage with these conservative speakers that come to the campus and they don't want to, you know, refute any of their arguments. They just kind of want to shut them off campus and say, and say, you know, it's hate speech and all that. I just <clears throat> think that that's kind of hurting them more. Oh, it's horrible. Because then yeah. the right can just say like, oh, look, they're against free speech and everything. And yes. then, yeah. And then you made that movie about a, a Gavin, uh, that video about Gavin McInnes, who's yeah. like a popular guy on not necessarily the alt-right, but like in that spectrum. Yeah. And like he like not enough people are like debunking his arguments mm-hmm. really like and they're they're pretty easy to debunk a lot of them. It's just that. The, the left's making it easy for him to just kind of make fun of them and that side to just kind of make fun of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and I suppose – so in that particular one, um, it was about his 20 reasons why school sucks. Um, and, and that was an example of a time where I'm taking somebody from the right who thinks that all schools should just be privatized. Um, I happen to work in the field of education, so I happen to have a level of experience in that field where I do feel – that there, there aren't people making this video. There aren't people having these conversations. It, education in general is painfully under-discussed in, in the political climate. Um, it, it hardly ever came up in the last presidential debate as far as like, how what should we do to help our schools? It just didn't come up. I listened carefully for it in all these debates. The closest thing we got was Bernie Sanders promoting um, free uh, to free tuition to state colleges. But as far as like, primary school and secondary school like it's a non-issue so that was a subject in particular where yeah people aren't really talking about this um so yeah that was one and and the i fear from what i see that uh from my own side of the political aisle the left has basically won the culture war where um we understand these certain things we understand that by and so, so this is 2018 over the last 20 years, we've come to a pretty clear understanding that things like racism are wrong. OK, uh, we've come to a, a pretty clear understanding that, that it's and I'm talking about we like overall as a country, um, not, uh, hey, this gathering of people in this place who, you know, these, this neo-Nazi group that that apparently is representative of like 70 percent of the population, if you ask some people, Um as a country, we understand that these certain things are wrong, and because of that, uh, I it feels like the left in many ways has lost the will to argue. Like when that neo-Nazi is is presenting arguments, is is saying um, why they feel the way they do, we don't argue with them anymore. Yeah. We, we we just uh, call them names. We we say and. And let's think about that. You know, let's run it through a a cost benefit analysis. Uh, Let's say somebody isn't like the the blatant I'm wearing a swastika kind of person. Let's just say that they are an alt-right person and they are spewing very negative points, things that you consider to be racially insensitive or things that you consider to be politically incorrect or dangerous. Um, Now. If your response to them is, I'm going to call this person a Nazi. (laughs) Okay, let's assume that that person is, in fact, a Nazi. Let's assume you're right. 
is calling him a Nazi going to change his mind? Is calling him a Nazi going to change the minds of anybody who's listening? Is it going to change the minds of the people around him? Is screaming at him that he's a Nazi, is that going to help if it's true? I don't think it is. I think that uh, if he already is comfortable with that label for himself, then you haven't done anything. You know, It's just like if you were to yell at me, well, you're a man. <laughs> you know, you're just being really aggressive and telling me something that and calling me a label that I already hold. OK, that that's you just called me that that didn't advance anything that didn't change my mind. That didn't help anything. Now, let's say that he doesn't consider himself a Nazi. Um, now you're screaming at him instead of you still haven't addressed his argument. You've just called him a label. You've put a label on him that he doesn't assign to himself. So. Again, that would be like if I gave you my opinion on why we should have universal health care and you screamed at me, well, you're a woman. You're being a woman. You're a woman, woman. Like screaming that at me when you're, you're just putting a label on me that I don't hold for myself. That is just going to be very strange to me. And, and because I already know that that label doesn't fit me. So even if you really believe it does – you still haven't addressed my argument, and now I just think that you're weird because you're throwing a label at me that I don't assign to myself. And, and you're, you're not articulating what about that label is wrong or, or why I should change my perspective or why I seem like this thing or why it's bad to be this thing. You're just calling me the thing. It's like the most base level of what you can possibly do. So in neither situation is it going to help your side of the argument. And that's kind of what we do. We just we assume that because, uh, yeah, being racist is really bad. Therefore, if I don't agree with this person's argument, I'm going to call them a racist and then that will dissuade them. I'll accuse them of hate speech rather than actually listening to what they have to say and then addressing it and responding. Well, and they're to even it. going further. They're saying, like, you should just punch a Nazi like you shouldn't even uh, call them. A, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a thing. Like and, and I see this. Again, um, in in our – because most of the people that I have as close friends are on the left, um, I, I have to be very wary of, of like the potential digital echo chamber. Uh, and it disturbs me how many of my peers on the left see that as like an acceptable proposition. And, and I have a, a fairly recent video called Cathartic Poison. Um, and, and it's dealing particularly with race, but also just political issues in general, where it, it might feel really good to just like, to just really let it out and let these people have it. And whether it's you're, you're from an oppressed minority group, or if you feel like you're, you're just so much more virtuous than these people to really rip into them about how evil they are and how terrible they are, that might feel good, but it's counterproductive. You're not getting any – not only are you not getting anything done, you're making your own side look worse. So you're making things worse for yourself. And like, yeah, even when I've gone on uh, like right-wing videos and they show the videos of like people on the left just getting angry and not yeah. arguing, they say they know that we're right and they have no arguments. In fact, like that's exactly what a lot of them say. <laughs> well, well, yeah, and, and they're right to do so. Like wouldn't – I mean I would if if I were trying to – Go to um, a – if I were trying to go to, let's say, Liberty University, a 
I were to if they agreed to have me there to give a speech on my thoughts about theism and the and, and something simple like I'm going to give a speech on how it's possibly to be good without God. This is a college campus with a strong religious majority, and I'm going to be I'm invited to this campus to talk to and, and present my position. Now, if the students and the surrounding community protested me coming, accused me of hate speech and refused to listen to what I had to say, um, and, and as I was approaching, if they just lined up and physically protested and didn't want me on the stage, I would consider that to be, okay, well, you'd rather censor me than hear out my argument. Why not hear my argument and then respond to it? Why not ask me questions? Why not challenge me? Like, And, and we're talking about college campuses here. This is where intellectual conversation should be flowing, right? Why not challenge my ideas, no matter what they are, even especially not even if, but especially if you think that they're evil and inherently flawed, why not address me on that platform? And when you censor somebody, it looks like you don't have an argument for them. Yeah, so, or like, and then some, and some of them say that they want to make Nazis afraid to be Nazis. But to me, like, even if then they're just going to be secretive about it and, you know, be more smart about not being so obvious with it. Or whatever, well, but and, and as usual, you, you embolden those people. You you give those recruiters a chance to say, look, they don't want to even they don't want to let us talk. They're trying to take away our free speech. They're trying to to hold us back because they can't beat us in an argument. So this is what they have to resort to. It gives them a victim complex, um, and I'm not interested in that. Now, if you want to make someone a social pariah, if you want to uh, let them know exactly how you feel about that. That's fine. Um, if you don't want to be friends with somebody, that's fine. But trying to censor them from uh, expressing their their positions at rallies or speeches, it just doesn't make sense. Um, you should you should allow them to speak, and then you speak too. That's kind of how free speech should should operate. It's not just freedom to say things that you like. Uh, it, it should be – and popular speech doesn't need defending. So it can't just be, you know, hey, um, unpopular speech from the groups that I like should be defended. So, you know, homosexuals should be able to get up there and, and talk and, and talk about their rights. That's fine, and we should protect them because it's unpopular. But – Somebody who is a white supremacist, I don't like that unpopular speech. Therefore, it's hate speech. Therefore, um, we should censor them and protest them. Um, yeah, like people forget that like there was a time when people wouldn't want Martin Luther King to speak right. or whatever. And like it's the same thing that protect, protected him speaking then protects them. So it's like you can't choose it. You can't choose freedom of speech for one person and then say, oh, this person can't have it. You have to give it everybody sure. it's always going to be it's always going to offend somebody if it's controversial in any way like right. uh even black lives matter there's people that think you know just that black lives matter is just a let's kill cops movement and they yeah. wouldn't want them to speak so mm -hmm. i mean you can't have one without the other you have to let both speak sure and, and and i say let that happen let people speak let people get their ideas out there including uh including countering those speeches. So if if you're a student group at a college and somebody's coming to talk, if Ben Shapiro's coming to talk or um, 
you know, name name whoever it is is coming to talk and you really disagree with them and you are mad that somebody of this political position is coming to talk at your at your campus, then organize and buy to to either speak at a counter event or a later event and address them point for point. Record it. Put it on YouTube. Uh, get a transcript. Put out a blog. We have the internet and we have social media that uh, that allows people to amplify their voices. After, if, especially if you're on a college campus, you're going to be there much longer than those people are. So you have all the time you want. You can stand in the academic mall and go point for point through everything that so and so said at his evil neo-Nazi speech or his his icky icky right wing speech. Like you have the opportunity to counter all of those ideas, but if you just yell at them for being who they are um, or you throw labels at them or you try to censor them, then you've made yourself look intellectually weak and you've lost the opportunity to really sway people's minds. Yeah, and then, and then they, they make the argument that like those people coming to the schools making the minority students at those schools not safe because there's a Nazi coming to speak. But I don't know if I agree that just them coming to speak is putting anyone in danger. Necessarily. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I would agree. Um, if, 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 there, if, if people are coming and are attempting to do harm, um, if you have if you have people that are threatening violence and, and they're saying, hey, we're going to come to your college and we're going to do this. That's one thing. But if you have somebody who's coming to give a speech, then then no. And, and we need to get out of this concept. Uh, and again, this is I this is bipartisan, but I see, maybe it's because I'm on the left, so I hear more of it from the left. Where um, if something is uncomfortable, then it's bad. If if this makes me uncomfortable, if this hurts my feelings, now there are a lot of these quote unquote snowflakes on the right, where like uh, if you're offended by somebody with darker skin than you, <laughs> if you're offended by an interracial couple kissing, then I think that makes you pretty, pretty damn, damn sensitive. sensitive. But, yeah. um, <laughs> but there, there are a lot of people in terms of like the sociopolitical conversations, a lot of people on the left, their argument is, well, this hurts people's feelings. This, this makes me feel uncomfortable. I don't like this. And when we're talking about ideas, that just doesn't cut it for me. Um, I'm, I'm a believer in the open marketplace of ideas. And if you think that this, that this idea is wrong, then counter it. You know, we, we live in a time more so than ever where people, even if you're a, a, a nobody who like, like me, who, who, who doesn't have, like, I don't have Ben Shapiro's platform, right? I don't have, um, McGinnis's platform. I'm just, I'm just a normal person. I, I, I work a, a full-time job and, I'm also a coach and uh, I have all these these other things. I work a lot of hours. I, I don't have the time or the resources or things like that that these people have. But you know what? I have the Internet and I have the ability to um, to take what they're saying and respond to it and put it out there for for countless people to see. Uh, that's what we should be doing. We should be listening instead of censoring, and we should be responding instead of appealing to how it makes us uncomfortable or it hurts our feelings. I'm not going to convince anybody um, in the short term or the long term that what uh, 
McGinnis was ignorantly saying about public education that it's wrong if I if, if my argument is that makes me uncomfortable or I don't like that or he hurt my feelings. You know, he shouldn't be allowed to say that because because it's insensitive to me. Uh, no, I should be pointing just out calling him a Nazi. Then all he right. says is I'm not. <laughs> yeah, then... <laughs> exactly. Or it's either I'm not. Duh. Or I am. So what? Like <laughs> it's like so, how the right sometimes calls anybody with like a progressive view communist. Or oh whatever. yeah, exactly. Like, <laughs> and, yeah. and so what happens in, in my ongoing frustration, frustration. It, being somebody who, if you're just willing, this this is very unfortunate about where we are in our political landscape. If you're just willing to hear out the other side of any given argument, um, we are by and large so many people are so unnuanced that that automatically makes you a sympathizer of the other side. So being that I kind of live in this gray area where I'm willing to – it's crazy. Uh, you know, I'm radical. I'm, I'm willing to listen to both sides of an issue, even uh, if not especially an issue that I find really wrong. Um, you know, when, when, when you present me with an idea that I think is, is just abhorrent and terrible and awful, I, I allow myself to be curious as to why. And I want to enter a conversation with you figuring out, well, why do you feel that way? What's if you have such what appears to be obviously such a terrible perspective? I want to understand why I want to get to know why. And maybe that will help me reach you or maybe that will teach me something that I didn't understand before. But but that's crazy for 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 some people like that's radical. It's wild. So it puts me in this awesome position of being both like I'm both an Islamophobe and a Muslim sympathizer. I'm both a social justice warrior and I'm apparently an, an alt-right uh, racist, racist fascist. Um, I'm, I'm like all of these things. That I'm, I'm both of these opposite ends of the spectrum depending on who you talk to because when a lot of people hear that, oh, I'm – well, I can see what they're saying. Oh, what? Or, well, I'd actually like to hear them out and respond to their argument. What? Don't give them a platform, you – Nazi lover, you like <laughs> this is just kind of where we are, and it's a terrible place to be because we spin our wheels, and I think all we do is is make this greater divide where nobody accomplishes anything. Yeah, because like if you don't try to understand why someone thinks the way they do, then there's no way you can persuade them. Like, sure, if you're not empathizing with them at all. I mean, that, you can try, you can make a really good reason for your own position, but. Until you actually try to meet them where they are and try to understand uh, understand them and then address where they're coming from, it's going to be very difficult unless they are very open-minded. And you don't give them a lot of reason to be open-minded if you're not being open-minded towards this position. And that's, uh, that's my main, uh, I think, problem with Antifa is that so many people are called Nazis now. And like, like what you said, like even listening – to what one of those alt-right people have to say just out of curiosity to understand what it is they believe then they'll call you a sympathizer so then it's like antifa could just like punch you then or whatever like how yeah. do they determine who's a nazi and who's not like exactly yeah. so so when it comes to like and this is the danger of when you start labeling things that make you uncomfortable as hate speech right because all of a sudden it's well who gets to decide who, who is who's the decider of what speech we're censoring um, which is why, I mean, with with very few restrictions, and I'm talking like yelling fire in a crowded theater sort of stuff. Um, I say let people say whatever they want, and and if it hurts feelings, okay. But when when we take that to the next level of violence, like that's a problem. 
I don't care. I don't care what somebody says. You know, somebody can say the most vile, ruthless, uh, horrific things to me. If they haven't, if they're just saying it to me and they're not doing something, if they're not attacking me, um, short of being a threat, you know, if, if they say like, hey, I'm going to shoot you if you turn your back on me. OK, well, that's that's a violent threat. But if you're just if you're just presenting ideas that I find abhorrent, that's not going to I can't imagine a world where I'm going to respond to that with violence. Because how is that going to change anyone's mind? That's going to make me. It's going to make me the bad guy. Yeah, because then you could even take it to like a religious person finding, you know, an atheist views abhorrent or mm-hmm. whatever. Then they can, or by that logic, then they could just punch you like Antifa. Right. Yeah, we haven't won that culture war yet. You know, the atheists haven't won the culture war. Is it's still culturally in the United States, uh, atheists are still the outsiders. So when when I express that I think that religion is nonsense and more so that religion is harmful. If that hurts people's feelings, does that give them the right to respond to me with violence because I'm attacking their religion by having an opposing viewpoint? Uh, These things, when you draw these things out to their logical conclusion, you find out how illogical that conclusion is. Yeah. And I feel like uh, even like five years ago, even in the YouTube community, more people were, like arguing and just sort of debunking that whole uh, white that whole white genocide thing. I saw like a whole bunch of videos. I think even from like Coughlin. I don't know if you were one of the ones who did it. Uh, I know Peach and some of the other atheist YouTubers like were debunking that. Uh, like it like a, like 2012. I think it was like debunking a lot of those far right like uh, race realist types. And then they just I thought that was more effective because then everybody just saw how stupid those people's ideas were and they just kind of laughed at them and nobody took them seriously. But now they're gaining more popularity because nobody's countering any of their arguments. Yeah. The other side isn't giving any arguments. Yeah. I'm I'm glad (laughs) you brought that up. That that one particular issue. um, I actually, I didn't, I was in a lot of comment sections. I didn't make a video on that. Um, I considered it. And in fact, uh, I, I I think maybe he goes by liberal ogre now. Um, he was the true puka at the time. I saw him at a at the Reason Rally, I believe it was, and he had made a recent video on, on that. Uh, and I mentioned to him, you know, man, I, I think for my next video or one of my upcoming videos, I might be throwing my hat in the ring with the the race realists, you know, just to just to to get that out there, get my thoughts on that off my chest. And he pointed out, like, um. He said in his experience that they were some of the wackiest people in, in as far as responses that he was getting and the threats he was getting and all these things. Like they're some of the craziest ones out of all the people that I've dealt with, worse than like the um, worse than fundamentalists, worse than um, than pretty much any any group to that point. He, he said they were the wackiest ones. So like you might make a one-off video about this topic and be dealing with them for the rest of your YouTube career. Um, and, and I still thought about making one, but by the time that I got around to it, that was one where, again, it just felt like I was so, um, like everyone had said what I wanted to say. Um, but I, I, like I said, I was in a lot of comment sections and I'm glad you bring it up because, uh, what people, another criticism that people will make is that you need to, um, you need to make a video or a blog or something about every position you have. And so, for example, because I haven't made a video um, d- 
what was something that came up? Uh, apparently, there were this the the movie Black Panther came out, and it was a big thing for the black community, and people were really happy about it for all kinds of reasons. And apparently, there were some white people who were being trolls on Twitter and like claimed that black people had attacked them at when they went to see Black Panther. That was allegedly untrue. Um, yeah, I think it was uh, like fake Twitter accounts. Yeah, yeah, out, yeah. Like, like that, that, that apparently happened. happened. Um, I was in some argument about uh, about I think it was the it might have been from the scene in Black Panther where um, they're on that mountain. Have you seen the movie? I haven't seen the movie. No, okay. I heard a lot about it, but I okay. Haven't seen so there's it. a scene without. Uh, I'm a a real real hater of spoilers, so I'll, I'll just be brief on this. There's a scene where a white guy tries to talk, and this one tribe of people like shout him down, and they're like barking at him like apes, and they just like shut this white guy down. Okay, and there was a radical take on it that was published into a blog that a lot of people uh, or far too many people in my opinion got on board with saying when white people speak out of turn that's what we should do we should bark them down we should silence them okay so i posted this on my uh youtube channel's facebook page saying like you know this this is a problem this isn't good and i was like i was criticized because i hadn't made a video or a post about these white people with their fake Twitter accounts, right? So that's just a, a microcosm of the example. Same thing, because I don't make a lot of videos about Islam, uh, very few, um, but I, I don't make videos dealing with every example, calling out every example or many examples of um, the dangers of fundamental uh, fundamentalist Islam. Therefore, I'm an Islamic sympathizer because I haven't I haven't addressed every single thing that comes out, like everything that I disagree with or I'm against. I haven't made that like clear. I haven't, I haven't made a made video, video about it or I haven't I gone on a rant, rant about it or a Facebook post or something like. So what do you need to do? Do you need to like I mean, that would be a daily occurrence, right? Like every day I'm going to post five things that I'm against. I'm anti-murder. Um, <laughs> I'm, I, I, my, my official position, everybody, is that I'm I'm anti-Nazi, just so you know. I'm sorry I hadn't made that clear. So a lot of things that uh, I think are just common sense. Um, but if I don't happen to think to, to make a video about it, um, apparently I'm I'm for that. If you don't make it very clear in, in the YouTube world, apparently, if you don't make a video explicitly explaining that you're against something, then you're pro that thing. Um, at least from people who disagree with you. And I guess that was something a lot of people hadn't pointed out, too, right? The thing about the white people shouldn't bark or whatever that was you said. Because I know a lot of people were talking about the the um, the guy who said that he – the people who said they were attacked at the Black Panther shootings, and that yeah. wasn't true. Yeah. But uh, a lot of people didn't talk about the other thing you were talking about. Right, oh, right. Yeah. Isn't that funny? How yeah. like, <laughs> um, so I'm bringing up something that's less and, – and at the time, so the funny thing with that particular example is I hadn't even heard of the Twitter thing. I didn't hear about it until people said uh, – until I was accused basically of being racist because I wasn't bringing up this story. Um, it's It's been all over my social media. Why haven't you been talking about this? Uh, I, I didn't happen to see it. I didn't happen to hear about it. You're the first I've heard about it. Imagine that, that, you know, 
I heard about it from you. Um, so the when I bring up the less popular thing, uh, and I'm bringing attention to this problem, that's also a problem. That's not to say that that these fake Twitter accounts that are trying to uh, attack the black community uh, that that's not a problem. It's not mutually exclusive, you know. And, and I think that's the other thing. Um, this this concept seems so foreign. And it's going to blow your mind when I say it, but it turns out that two people who disagree with, with one another, they can both be wrong. <laughs> like, imagine, I mean, isn't that just mind-blowing that, that two people can both be wrong, um, let alone two groups of people that are in these radically opposing positions or viewpoints? Because I find that usually the truth is somewhere in the middle of two extremes or the most reasonable position is usually somewhere in the middle. So – it's possible that yeah, both the uh, the fake Twitter account people that are that are uh, slandering the black community, yeah, they're wrong and should be condemned for it. Um, and the people who think this scene from a movie, which is I think was kind of done as like a fan service laugh, um, the, and I don't think by the way I don't think the movie itself. At, by any means was was trying to say that this is a good thing uh, that that this person was getting like shouted down because he's an outsider let alone because he's a white person um i don't think that the movie's message was we should do this it wasn't portraying these people it was it was actually kind of played off as a humorous scene um but i don't think that was the movie's message so I think that yeah the fake twitter people they're wrong and the people who interpret this to say yeah let's let's verbally shout down white people when they speak out of turn. Yeah, they can be wrong too. It's not one or the other. Yeah, and I guess it wasn't like, and I guess it wasn't like uh, Django Unchained where he was like getting revenge against slave owners or whatever. Right, right, so, right, right yeah. yeah. And, and uh, that's a whole different um, ball of wax there. Uh, that that movie is very cathartic as is like in glorious bastards and and i'm a tarantino fan um and, and in a way black panther is kind of similar um all, all of those strains they, they are they're somewhat cathartic and, and they feel good um they don't necessarily address the action they don't unpack the issues that we have so um it's it's it feels good to watch django unchained and see a former slave go kick the asses of slave owners and, <laughs> and and just shoot up people and and get physical revenge on the people who who have been evil that feels good but that does not actually unpack the issues of slavery in America that doesn't that doesn't really help anything other than feeling good for the two and a half hours that we're watching the movie um at the end of the day, we still have a lot of the problems that we have, and watching that might feel good, but it doesn't solve them. And I, I brought up with with Black Panther, a movie that I've been looking forward to seeing for a long time. Um, I've been looking forward to seeing it since uh, Chadwick Boseman played that character in Captain America's Civil War. I've been looking forward to it. Like, man, 2018, February 2018, it's so far away. And I was really excited. The the director is Ryan Coogler, who I haven't seen him anything of his that I didn't like. I was so excited for it. And uh, revealing my like a bit of my comic book superhero um, 
nerd nerdiness, but um, but I was really looking forward to that. And then it got all hyped up as we got closer to it, and the black community was excited about it, about having all this representation. Um, I made a movie about that, about representation for minorities and video games and movies and things like that as well. Um, but it comes out, and people are all excited because the movie features this portion of Africa where there's this really valuable um, – this really valuable resource. So they're all wealthy and royal and that's the side that we get and people get all excited. And, and I'm seeing all this pride about like, yeah, I'm so proud of having African roots, but like you're proud of this fictional thing. <laughs> you're, you're proud of you're being, you're proud of it. Not because of like a depiction of reality. Like when this film ends, Africa is still what Africa is. And I think that being proud of where you're from, no matter where you're from, is stupid. Um, I, I think that pride should be reserved for things that you've accomplished. But um, if you're going to be proud of a place where your ancestors are from, it's probably best to not be proud of a fictional depiction of a part of a place where your ancestors were from. Um, that just seems a little strange to me. Uh, so these things are, again, it's, catharsis, it's, it's cathartic. It feels good. It's like, oh, yeah, look at that. That's awesome. But it is fiction. And meanwhile, in reality, we have real problems to address. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I see where they're coming from, because like even in the 90s, like you could when I look back at like movies or shows from the 90s, like mm -hmm. it's a mainly white cast. And then whatever black or Hispanic characters on there is sort of like a caricature so, like even on uh, Seinfeld, I think like the only Hispanic character I saw was like this woman who's a maid, and she was like this very. I mean, I liked Seinfeld a lot, but like <laughs> it definitely didn't age well in those certain ways. So I guess being from one of those, if I, I guess I could see why someone from one of those communities would like be glad to see more, uh, like I guess black roles or Hispanic roles, like that are non stereotypes or whatever. Sure, sure. Um, um, I would. I would to, to that point, and, and I agree, uh, I don't have anything against somebody who's like happy to see people that look like them in, in different roles in a movie. Um, and I don't mean to rain on that parade. I, I find it uh, and kind of what I pointed out in, in my video on the topic. Um, as a kid, I had a lot of characters from movies and video games that didn't look anything like me that weren't my. Um, ethnicity or they weren't my body type or they weren't my gender, but I looked at them as as kind of uh, role model figures or uh, they they were more representative of me because they had the characteristics that I wanted to see in myself. Um, and I was able to see that kind of representation. Um, I, I feel more represented by a character who does the things that I would do in their situation than I do with, hey, that character looks like me. You um, said like uh, Wesley Snipes, uh, Wesley uh, Snipes character. Blade. Right, right. Like yeah. Wesley Snipes and Blade, I loved as a kid. It was an important character in my childhood seeing that movie. And another thing, like culturally, I don't know what this says about us. Like, have we moved backwards? Because the public perception when Blade came out. It was a huge uh, uh, commercial success. It was a finance, very financially successful movie. They made a, a franchise out of it. Um, but nobody was or, – or the bulk of the conversation wasn't, look, there's a black superhero. Look at that. Look at the, and 
Andy's black. Can you believe that? It was like, oh, this is Wesley Snipes in this movie, and he's like doing. He's a kung fu half breed vampire who who's uh, cracking wise and kicking ass. And that was like that was why that movie was hyped up. It wasn't this like race movement, <laughs> like that. That just wasn't the case. And never as a child, uh, or as a young adult, or as an adult, I just uh, I don't force myself to see things through that lens where everything is about someone's color first. Um, and in recent years, I've kind of been – people from my side of the political aisle have tried to force me to do that. And I've, I've really – I've tried just out of feeling like that's what I need to do. Um, growing up in a very – I was very fortunate to grow up in a very diverse community um, with friends from all kinds of different ethnic groups. Um, and we, we were all just people, you know, like Bobby Goldsboro says, uh, kids are colorblind. Um, and, and that's kind of even having a, a very racist side of my family. It, it was, I was like immune to it. I, I was impervious to that because I was, I, I grew up around too many different examples to disprove that. So when, as I got older, I just kind of always thought that's how it was supposed to be. You know, you judge people by the content of their character. Um, you don't need – I don't need people to look like me in order for me to relate to them, in order to be friends with them, in order to consider them heroes. Um, and then the left has told me that that's racist. Like that's my privilege, right? Like I'm I'm privileged enough to uh, – to, to, to be colorblind, but if, if I were a black person or if I were a Hispanic person or if I were a woman, then I would realize that you know they have to see the world this way. Everything has to be about the demographics to which you belong. Um, and I, I just – I think that if – it's a dangerous and stressful way to live your life. If, if everything that happens to you or everything that you see, you have to put through this um, – you have to put through this filter – of your skin color or your name a demographic um if if everything negative that happened to me hell if half of the negative things that happened to me if i said you know that's just because of my skin color or that's that only happened to me because i'm a male and because i'm male and and this person was was female that's why she said that to me that's why the waitress didn't look at me when i talked to her that's why that person cut me off in traffic that's why i didn't get what i what i the job that i, I applied for if half the things that happened to me i said that was just because of my skin color and or my gender or whatever demographic i would feel like the world had it out against me um and that's the danger. That's, that's that's part of the danger of that perspective is that you if you and look there's at there's a confirmation that, bias, I guess, too. Right. right like exactly. That. If all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So that's that's where you put yourself. And for me, just saying what I said, I'm this alt-right fascist neo-Nazi. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, I'm I'm apparently trying to. Uh, to preach to black people about how to live their own lives just because I, I have an opinion based on on how how I was raised and how what reality has shown me. Reality has shown me quite simply that uh, out of all the people I've encountered from all different walks of life, um, some of them are really cool. Some of them are assholes. <laughs> some of them and a lot of them are somewhere in between. 
but apparently that's a radical racist position. (laughs) And this is all relatively new, I think. Like, only the past few years, like, this is the way the left has been. I don't even think during the Bush years it was like this too much. I don't think so either. And and I I might be, uh, you know, maybe I was too young or focused on other things or I I don't know. Um, But it does seem relatively recent by comparison. Uh, When I grew up, that was it was kind of just a um it was just a given that you judge people by based on the content of their character um i i brought up in one of these arguments that i was having uh i i quoted martin luther king about something um probably his his quote about um darkness cannot drive out darkness only light can do that hate cannot drive out hate only love can do that and like the the Uber leftists that were arguing with me started mocking me for quoting Martin Luther King. Like, like, like what? That's a, that's a bad thing. Like quoting MLK or, or referring to what he was talking about. Like that's apparently some, some alt-right strategy or something. Like they're like, Oh, we got him. Look at him. Now he's quoting MLK. Like what, what world am I living in where judging people by the content of their character and driving out hate with love and not stewing in hatred? Like these are – I thought they were common sense, but apparently they're like comically poor ideas. And of course, they don't articulate why. <laughs> they just like yeah. mock you for doing it and call you a name and then move on. Yeah, and I think that's, like, uh, what I was saying earlier, like, how politics is kind of becoming a substitute for religion now, now that society's becoming more secular, like, at least more than it was before. They're kind of viewing their political views, like, how people used to view their religion. Like, you have to fall in line with all these different beliefs, and if not, you're a heretic. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's a, a fairly valid observation. Um it, Given the the lack of thinking, it's very similar uh, or the lack of, of willingness to question, right? Like one of the, the frustrating things about religious people or highly religious people um, that that get into these kind of heated arguments is they already they already know their position and they know that you can't change their position no matter what you should know. Because they they make it clear, no matter what, at the end of this conversation, I'm going to believe this, and and all I'm going to do is try to convince you that you're wrong. All you're going to do is try to convince me that I'm wrong. So um, on that note, I think when you go into those conversations, if you're just trying to prove that somebody's wrong, you're you're making a mistake. Um, even if you're just trying to prove to the audience that that person's wrong, I still think it's a mistake. I think it's it's healthiest to go into these kinds of debates and conversations. Um, trying to understand one another you know, trying looking to for a common ground or... right well or, or just maybe i i am going to disagree with you 100 percent at the end of this conversation we're, we're probably not going to to walk away agreeing with each other but what we can do is walk away understanding each other so if if i walk away still thinking if i'm having a conversation with like ken ham or eric hoven or, or whatever um if I walk away with a genuine understanding for why that person uh, has the position that he has and he walks away understanding why I believe what I believe, then we've learned something and we've accomplished something and we've grown. And our ideas might sit with each other and might contribute to part of our minds being changed. And hopefully whoever had the better articulated and, and stronger argument is going to in the long term prevail. Um, 
But the people who walk in saying, I know that this is my position. You're not going to change it. I'm just going to be insulted when you argue with me. Let's yell at each other. That strand of reasoning I've seen in highly religious people, and I've seen it in a lot of modern political conversations. So I think you draw a fair comparison there. Yeah, and there there was even that that black guy who used that technique of just listening to the other person with – uh, he did it with KKK members, and he got like 200 of them to leave the KKK. His, I think his name's uh, Daryl Davis. Yeah, he uh, had the documentary Accidental Courtesy, right? Yeah, yeah, it was on Netflix. Yeah, yeah it's and I don't know if it still is, but it's a it's a fantastic documentary that I would recommend to to anybody listening. Um, and it really highlights a lot of the things that I'm talking about. Uh, also, you're a racist because you refer to him as a black guy. Um, okay. <laughs> so I don't know if you're aware of that, but uh, okay. but you can't what, do is that. Uh, African American, right? The, uh, yeah, you're uh, still going to offend some people. So, um, and when you said guy, you assumed his gender. So that was also you just have to say his name. Okay, um, Daryl Davis. <laughs> don't use pronouns either, because then you're assuming those. So, okay. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, Accidental Courtesy is a fantastic documentary because he does the exact opposite of all of these problems that I'm describing, and he, uh, I aspire to enter conversations in the same way that he does, and you know, he finds this very common sense idea where if he is able to. W- Walk into a conversation with somebody that he knows he disagrees with. It's a black man willing to talk to somebody from the KKK, willing to have a conversation. Um, and he enters with a seeking to understand their position, not to um, to necessarily change their mind, but he wants to understand what what's making them tick. Why do you feel this way? And just by doing that, just by being the bigger person and entering a conversation with an open mind, you automatically Give yourself a chance to open the minds of the person with whom you're having this discussion. You don't do that by screaming at each other. And in that documentary, one of the – I think it's the most important scene in that documentary, but it's the hardest for me to watch is when he's he's sitting in a bar. I think he's in Baltimore, um, and this was after some – the recent like protests – in Baltimore, he sits down with a, a person from the KKK and has a conversation with that person, and and you know that's what a lot of the, the film is highlighting is the conversations that he's having with these people, and they have a a fairly reasonable discourse, and then he invites um, a couple of the people, the the black citizens who were in these protests, he invites them to sit down and have a conversation with them. And they're angry at him for having conversations with KKK members. Um, They're angry at him for talking to the side with which they disagree. And instead – so he's not marching in the streets protesting in Baltimore because they think that's not only the best way of going about it, but that's the only form of activism that they're going to respect. So you're talking to these racist white people instead of – protesting in the streets instead of protesting cops in the streets. So even if you believe that's the best way to handle your problem, you're, you're not okay with somebody you're fighting against somebody who's being reasonable, who's having these conversations, who's got like 200, who's converted like 200 of 
Like it's the most racist. Like it's that's the symbol of being a white supremacist in America, right? Is being a member of the KKK. People use it as like a, a hyperbolic uh, insult. Like if if you're just if someone's being kind of racist and you're like you're a KKK member, like yeah. <laughs> you're taking actual KKK members and getting them to change their mind to the tune of hundreds of people. This is the person that people on the far left, like his techniques of actually listening, they're willing to to throw him under the bus. They're willing to say that that you're a problem. <laughs> like, I, I, how is that? Is this real life? <laughs> like, how can you justify that? And they won't sit at the table with him. Like they they stand up and they walk away from the table from him. Like they rage quit the conversation when. All he's doing is trying to explain why he's willing to talk and listen to people. Yeah, I did see that they made up, like, after the film, and then they gave some talks together, like him and those two, him and one of those Black Lives Matter guys. Yeah, well, that's the best news I've heard all day. Yeah. <laughs> um, like I said. <laughs> so at least, like, even they came to a common understanding. Like, he said he still didn't agree with talking to KKK members, but, like, they still found like a common ground so well, i mean that's the power of daryl davis to somebody who to, to have that kind of patience yeah. um, <laughs> but I, I would imagine that for him and this is entirely speculation this is just like uh, from my own experience and for what he's going through it's probably harder for him to deal with that from the people on his own side of the issue it's probably a lot harder for him to handle people that are um that are from his own demographic on his own side, screaming at him, refusing to talk to him, walking away from him, insulting him. That's probably tougher than the KKK guy calling him the N word um, or, or using the N word. That's probably he wants to reach the people on his side more. I guess. Sure. Well, you would at least hope that they could understand you. And yeah. when they're going out and they're fighting, you expect yeah, you don't you don't expect the KKK guy to right. like you or understand right. you. <laughs> you expect him to hate you automatically. You don't. You, you'd like to think that at least I can sit down with people who I'm for whom I'm advocating for whom I'm fighting. At least they're going to be on my side. And then. Some of them aren't. <laughs> so I, I'm really glad to hear that. I hadn't heard that um, they had reconnected. And, and Oh, yeah, yeah. There was there's like a YouTube video of it, like where they speak together. And that's everything. awesome. It's just pretty cool. Needs to happen so, more. Yeah, definitely. So um, I guess any final thoughts before we wrap up? Like maybe just like a final message to everybody or. Um, yeah, I guess the, the, the primary thing that, that, that I keep coming back to um, is is that we are th- we are thirsty for nuance in our conversations. Uh, it doesn't matter what they're about. Uh, when and, and a lot of people are stuck in in going along to get along, or we we lock ourselves in into the, those aforementioned digital echo chambers. It's extremely dangerous. Um, the same algorithms that the that Facebook or Twitter or Google uses to ensure that you are sold products or advertised products that you're going to like because of the things that you approve of in social media, those same algorithms feed you more and more of the things that you like from your friends, which is why you're going to see more and more of the things with which you already agree. Um, So it's very easy to be constantly reinforced uh, 
or have, have this concept constantly reinforced that you're right about everything because you're only hearing or you're primarily hearing from the people who agree with you. Um, and it can be very jarring to suddenly hear from people who disagree with you. And it can be obnoxious and it can sting and it can it can really harsh your mellow when but you don't grow unless right you right yeah. exactly and, and as with with so many things whether that is a piece of work that you're doing that you invite somebody to critique you know you can put 30 hours into a project and then somebody comes along and gives you feedback that's not pleasant and that can sting but it, you need that in order to grow you need that for that product to be the best that it can be so um i just i challenge anybody who's listening for what it's worth that when you are challenged on these things um to to not jump to insult or to not jump to to what's comfortable and, and understand that sometimes being and oftentimes being uncomfortable is the state that we need in order to grow. So it's not always a bad thing. And in fact, it's oftentimes a, a very good thing. So maybe if, if more people and even if two or three people can kind of embrace that discomfort and learn from each other, um, we get a lot more done than we can screaming at each other from the opposite ends of the spectrum. Yeah, and that's uh, that's interesting because, like, uh, in my uh, the master's program, and now like some of the a lot of the courses I'm taking, uh, we talk about uh, echo chambers and stuff. But usually, people only talk about how there was echo chambers on the right with like Infowars <laughs> and all that that got Trump elected. But they don't they rarely point out that there was echo chambers on the other side too. Like the left was just as guilty. Oh yeah, with yeah. That. yeah, yeah. And that's why they didn't see the Trump victory coming. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So that's that's what we're in, in danger of there. Um, and that's a whole other uh, different podcast getting into yeah. <laughs> breaking down our our current political situation and how we got to this point and how that election went down. That's a that's a whole different ball of wax. But but uh, yeah, I think that's a large part of it. We don't see that coming if if. If you assume, you know, any kind of criticisms that you're prepared to levy against larger groups of people, you really want to make sure that you're checking in your rearview mirror to see did did I commit this or have I committed or am I committing these same things? Um, because a lot of the things, it's almost it's the sort of thing that you either laugh about or cry about. But when you are able to place yourself in the middle and you're willing to hear both sides, the the things that they fling at each other that often hit you. Um, are oftentimes the same things. And I gave the snowflake sensitive example earlier, but that there are many things that are bipartisan partisan where the left criticizes the right for it and the right criticizes the left for it. And neither of them can see their own hypocrisy. So yeah. um, I, I would just hope that if we're mindful of these things and my, my fingers are crossed that it's people on the left who figure it out first <laughs> because yeah. I want you to be successful. I, I'm on your side. Um, but really at this point, I'd kind of settle for, for any of us welcoming back in the, the nuance that has really been missing from our, our political conversations. All right. Well, uh, yeah, thank you for coming on, man. And, um, thank uh, you for having chat. Yeah, no problem. And, uh, I guess, where can people keep updated? Just Grappling Ignorance, your YouTube channel? Yeah, that's, that's the best place to find me is uh, Grappling Ignorance is the name of my YouTube channel. And uh, links to social media are in pretty much every video that I post from there. Are you going to be putting more spoken word, poetry, or any of that? Or Yeah, um, I actually have uh, a, uh, a poem that I'm working on right now um, that will be posted at some point this month. Um or next it depends uh, it's already the end of uh, the end of month um but yeah yeah i i will be uh 
these these political things that I do post, um, sociopolitical stuff, it, it's it's like a it, on one level it's cathartic. It feels good to get it off my chest, but on the other level, um, the responses that come back, the criticism that is sometimes valuable is also like stressful. Um, so uh, it's been a while since I've just been able to put out something like a short story or a poem or something like that. So. Um, and it feels good to be able to do that. Even if people don't like it, at least they're not calling – well, they don't always call me like a neo-Nazi fascist, Islamophobe, Islamic sympathizer for doing it. So, so yeah, there's probably some more of that coming in the, in the very near future. All right, cool. Okay, so that does it for this episode of BSing with Sean K. Thank you for listening. Uh, if you want to keep updated with future episodes of BSing with Sean K, go to bsingwithseank.blogspot.com. And there's a link to my Twitter, my Facebook, my YouTube, and my RSS feed and everything else. You can also subscribe on iTunes and Google Play. And like I said, I'm going to play one of his poems, I Laughed. Uh, he talked about it earlier in the interview he, or conversation. He talked about it. It's, when he, it's about when he first moved to the Bible Belt and I guess just what he was observing when he was there and... I guess his experience as an atheist when he moved to the Bible Belt. So anyway, here it is, and I'll catch you on the next one. I moved to the Bible Belt and had to laugh. I laughed when I drove through the cotton fields searching for a radio station that didn't sing Christ's praises over the airwaves, as if AM and FM frequencies are better techniques for spreading the gospel than just letting that God tell us himself. It turns out that self-advertisement works better when the self part exists. I laugh when I drove down a street with more churches than houses, a speckled string of multi-dimensional worship, 46 churches claiming divine foundation, ignoring the obvious segregation, 46 ways to read the same damn book to reach the same damn destination. I laughed when I saw books of Christian propaganda on the shelves of public classrooms. I laughed when I walked through a parking lot seeing decals of a dead man with thorns on his brow and outlines of silver fish tacked on the backs of luxury sedans and rust bucket trucks alike. I laughed a little softer when they woke me up on Saturday to play their word games in their church clothes, hoping I'd smile and nod at their little pretentious pamphlets, then watch their shiny shoes run away when I started talking back that day. I laughed softer still when a child who used to greet me with a wave and smile turned a cold shoulder when she learned I didn't believe in the fairy tales she was raised to worship. I laughed very little when the biology teacher told a student that snakes didn't have legs because God was punishing them for the devil's stunt in the garden, as if the snakes committed the crime, or as if God wouldn't know that an ounce of prevention's worth an eternity of punishment that can't be cured, only treated by a steady regime of religious guilt cleansing. Just another dollar in the coffer, please. I laughed at first when a woman at a party told me humans can't come from monkeys because we still have monkeys today. I laughed heartily, impressed by her stern composure to not laugh back, despite the essence of her own hilarity. My laughter faded when I understood she wasn't joking. I laughed because this little town with an entire church for every 100 people was a humorous parody, the perfect substance of a colossal joke. It wasn't until I finally accepted that I was the only one who knew the punchline that I cried.